It is good to be back at West Coast Baptist College. I graduated here in 2010 with my master's degree, and it's tough to believe it's been more than a decade since I was sitting where you sat and being instructed as you are, uh, but time flies, and uh, it's enjoyable to serve the Lord, it's enjoyable to be in ministry, and I commend you for being here, for spending your time, your life, your money to invest in theological training, to invest uh, yourself into the future and into the gospel, because there's nothing better that you honestly could do with your life. So I know that many of you have life plans coming up. Many of you are graduating in May, and uh, I'll be praying for you. I know that's scary. It's tough to weigh all the options and to figure out where you're going and what's next, and that's exciting, and it's good to turn the chapter, but it's also it's also very scary, and it's nervous to, to think, do I have enough training? Do I know enough? What's this going to be like? So uh, I've been where you sit, and I've enjoyed every second of it. I enjoyed my time in college. I also now have enjoyed my time after college, and I don't want to go back. So I enjoyed both, and uh, many of you, you're looking forward to that. You're ready to, you're ready to be done, but hang on. you got a couple more months. you got a couple more months yet. I want you to make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 this morning. I want to take some time and examine the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm doing this for two reasons. Number one is because we just came off of Easter weekend, and it's fresh in my mind. Uh, but secondly is because the resurrection, as Paul describes it, is the linchpin of our Christian faith. That if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is not true. So it's never a bad idea to take some time and do some preventative maintenance, if you will, on the doctrine of the resurrection, and to just consider for a few moments that Jesus, he rose from the dead, literally bodily, in power, and that has implications for our life. I'll confess to you in my own personal life that as I grew through church, I grew up in church, my, uh, my father was a minister and spent a, a lot of time in church, you know, born into the nursery, if you, if you would. And I learned a lot in church, I learned a lot of doctrine, but as I came out of church into Bible college, I realized very quickly that I was a bit asymmetrical on my doctrine. I really had this robust view of Jesus dying on the cross for me, of Jesus suffering for me, of Jesus taking my sins, of Jesus taking my shame, paying for my sins. I had this robust view of that. I knew that, understood that. I heard a lot of preaching on that. I memorized verses on that. I told people that as I presented the gospel to them. But I had a very, it just wasn't a robust view of the resurrection. I believed in the resurrection. I believed that Jesus rose from the dead. I knew that he did, but I really didn't have many verses memorized on the resurrection. I didn't think about it often. <clears throat> I had not thought through the implications of the resurrection for my own life and consider what the scriptures have to say about that. And over the years, I have begun to not just understand the resurrection more and what it means for my life, but appreciate more, if that's possible, that Jesus rose from the dead and, and what that should, how that should grip us and how that should move us. So I want us to consider that this morning and hopefully help you understand a bit of what I've been able to understand over the last 10 years or so. So let's start in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to skip around in the passage. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for sake of time. It's a big chapter. But I want to begin in verse number 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep or some have died. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. 
Last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. If you would, skip down to verse number 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If you would skip down to verse number 30. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, is the most in-depth passage on the resurrection that you could find in the entirety of Scripture. It doesn't so much tell you the story of the resurrection. You can find that in the Gospels. You can read about that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But this tells you what the resurrection is. And really, at its core, this text is shot through with logic. There is a ton of deductive reasoning that Paul presents in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And you find these if-then statements. If Christ be not raised, then this is what it means for our life. And what you find in this text is that Paul is giving one giant, fantastic argument in favor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to do my best to show you just three parts of this argument. There's more than three parts in 1 Corinthians 15, but I just want to draw three parts of this argument to help you understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want us to consider this morning that the resurrection satisfies our minds, the resurrection releases our conscience, and the resurrection grips our heart. So let's take those in turn. Let's start with the idea that the resurrection should satisfy our minds. If you read verse number 14, Paul says, if Christ be not risen, then, so there it is, there's the if-then argument, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also vain. So vain mean empty or devoid of truth. And he says, yea, so also, it's not just that our, our faith is empty and devoid of truth if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But also, we are found to be false witnesses of God. So what Paul says simply is that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we're liars. We are not testifying truthfully. We are spinning a false narrative. We are not accurately reporting the facts. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're lying. And Paul moves this argument into the realm of witness, testimony, what is true and what is false, not just what we hope, what we think, what, what you know, we wish were true, but Paul tells us when we talk about the resurrection, this is true or not. And when I tell you that Jesus rose from the dead, I am telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Jesus raised. And he invites his audience, he invites you to be the jurors, to examine the evidence, to weigh the evidence. You say, what evidence is that? Well, he presented the evidence in verses 3 through 9. And Paul gave the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, this really happened. And he gives you the evidence for it. He says, there was an empty tomb. 
there were eyewitnesses and there have been changed lives. This is why he can write in verse number four that Jesus rose from the dead, meaning the tomb actually is empty. In verse five, six, seven, and eight, he goes to great lengths to spell out witnesses. He was seen of Cephas. He was seen of James. He was seen of me. I was born born out of due time. I, I saw him last. He was seen of above 500 brethren at once. What he says is there are hundreds of people who saw Jesus, who talked to Jesus, who touched Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 15 roughly 16 to 20 years after this happened, which is why he can invite his audience in verse number 6 where he says, look, the witnesses that saw Jesus, hundreds of him at once, most of them are still living. There are a few of them that have fallen asleep. There are a few of them that have died, but most of them are still living. So what he's saying is, go interrogate them if you want. Go talk to them if you want. Like, they're still there. They're still kicking. You can go talk to these people and actually find them available to you. And if you'll go find all the witnesses and line them up, you will just give them 15 minutes each. You're going to listen to testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. The witnesses saw him from breakfast Monday to dinner on Friday. You're going to witness... To, witness to, you're going to listen to witness testimony around the clock, day after day after day, of all these people that saw him. Then he says those changed lives. And he first talks about himself in verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, I was the one who was the last person on the planet to believe in the resurrection. I was the one who persecuted the church. I was the one who said, these people are liars, these people are frauds, and this is harmful to our society, this is harmful to the Jewish faith, and I need to do something about this, I need to stamp them out. I was the one who persecuted them, I was the last person to believe in the resurrection, but verse number 10, by the grace of God, I do, and I'm here to testify that Christ has worked in my life. But then he also makes the offer that you could go talk to the witnesses, and the only way he could make the offer that these people could go examine the eyewitnesses and talk to them is if the witnesses were still witnessing. The only way he could say, go talk to them, line them up, they're still available to you, is if, in fact, decades later, these people, at tremendous risk to their own lives, were still running around Galilee and running around Judea and running around the world saying, Jesus rose from the dead. It happened. I was there. I saw him. It's actually true. And what he's saying is these people's lives changed. They're, will they're willing to step up and to put their lives on the line. We know that many of them did in fact die. They were martyred for their faith because they testified of a risen Lord. Paul himself was in, he was chained and he was sent to Caesar because he had testified of a risen Lord. And if we put these things together, you get a very, very powerful testimony and a very powerful case that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. There's no way that Christians in the first century can immediately and successfully preach the resurrection of Jesus without these things all being in place. Because if they were to testify that there's an empty tomb, but there's no eyewitness testimony, then the audience would just say, well, somebody stole him. Like a grave robber came and they, they, they took him out of there and they just hid his body somewhere else. Nobody saw him. That's why the tomb is empty. If they testify that we saw Jesus but the tomb isn't empty, then that's an easy one. Just, just crack that bad boy open. He's still in there, right? 
You have to have eyewitness testimony. You also have to have an empty tomb. And then you have the changed life with it. And when you put all of those together, Paul is making an argument to the mind. He's arguing that this actually happened. Now, why am I being so rational with you? Okay, let me tell you why. First of all, I'm being rational with you because some of you right now are struggling with doubts about your faith or about Jesus. And I, I, I want to tell you that that's, that's not abnormal. That does happen. That happens in my own personal life at times. And some of you, even though you may not be talking about it, you may be a little ashamed because, I mean, I gave a testimony of salvation to get in, you know, WCBC. I had to sign a doctoral statement. I said I believe this. But some of you really deep down are wrestling with some of these things. And you need to know that the Bible isn't scared of your questions. I think I heard Dr. Getz say that a long time ago. The Bible's not scared of your questions, and there is, there is rationale to our faith. So I say that to you if you're struggling with your doubts. But I also primarily say this to you to help you as you witness, all of you, but especially you men as you preach, there is a type of witnessing and there is even a type of preaching that is so overtly emotional and anti-intellectual that it contributes to the notion that we should somehow take our brains out and set them on a shelf and when we come to faith in Jesus, just take a blind leap of faith and there's no evidence for that. There are some that they preach as if our faith isn't shot through with reason. And I want you to know that the, the preachers of the first century, Paul, when he preached, he didn't preach that way. There's, there's a constant introduction of witnesses, introduction of evidence. There's a constant asking you to stop, asking you to think, asking you to consider the evidence. So you need to know that our faith is shot through with reason and use that as you witness to people and use that as you, as you preach to prospective audiences. You also need to know this just so that you will be grounded to the truth. I don't want to take for granted that basic doctrine and basic truth claims of Christianity are something that, that you're grounded in. I think that you are because I, I know the faculty and the staff here, but you need to know that we need to constantly be reminded of these things. I read a book over Christmas break called One in Hope and Doctrine, and it was uh, most people would find it to be a boring read, but I found it absolutely fascinating. It was 500 pages on the history of independent Baptists. And this particular uh, part of the series chronicled from the Civil War era all the way till about 1950. And most specifically, it honed in on the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And what the book chronicles is the introduction of liberal theology into the Christian seminaries of the Northern Baptist Convention 75 to 100 years ago. And when I say liberal theology, I don't mean that they changed their standards and allowed the guys to have hair that touched their ears instead of an inch above their ears. I mean, they started to deny the deity of Jesus. They started to deny that Jesus vicariously suffered on our behalf and took our sins upon himself. They started to deny a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. I say this to you because you should thank God that you are at a place that has held the truth claims of Christianity, those major truth claims, it's held those doctrines strong year after year after year after year, and you should not take that for granted. You have a tremendous faculty here, many of which have been here five years, 10 years, 15 years, more than 15 years. And that's commendable and that's awesome that they show up and that they teach and they instruct and they give their lives to this day after day. But you should be more thankful, not just for their tenure, but more thankful that they have actually stuck to the stuff and they've kept pure doctrine over those decades of ministry. 
That's something that, that you absolutely should not take for granted, that the faculty here has had a long obedience in the same direction when it comes to doctrine. That's important. That's wildly important. Frankly, some of you have had enough to complain about this year. This year has presented us with lots of uh, idiosyncrasies and unique opportunities to, to complain. And some of you would be better off to stop complaining about, i got to wear a mask all the time, and there's a curtain in my room where there's not a shower, and all that sort of stuff, and actually start writing some thank you notes. Thank you for continuing to teach me the right stuff. Thank you, Dr. Getch and Dr. R and Brother Lester, and thank you, Pastor Chapel. Thank you for sticking to the stuff. It's important that we, that we understand, that we mentally understand that the resurrection is true, it's valid, that our faith is not in vain, it's not devoid of truth, that it actually happened and it should satisfy our minds. Secondly, the resurrection releases our conscience. This is a fascinating portion of the text for me. In verse number 17, you find the same if-then argument. If Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. So he's already said that, but he repeats it. Then he says this, and ye are yet in your sins. So let me put it to you this way. How did Paul get past his past? All right, Paul's the guy who persecuted the church, right? Didn't verse 9 say that? He persecuted the church. What's that mean? That mean he wrote him a, you know, a bad Facebook review or something? This means that Paul killed Christians, okay? Paul killed lots of Christians, Paul killed lots of Christians with glee. Right, that's messed up. He killed Christians with glee. And now, he is going to church. He is an apostle. He is leading the church in many ways. And now he goes to church with the wives, the cousins, the friends of the people he killed. How do you do that? I mean, I don't know if you've ever shown up to church with someone that you had a tiff with or someone you thought didn't like you or maybe, you know, they just dumped you so they're over there. That probably is this week, you know. Somebody's over here and somebody's over because you want to steer clear of them because they broke your heart or whatever it was. I don't think any of us have gone to church with a family of the people we killed. How do you get past that mental barrier? Like, that seems like it would be a mental barrier to me. To, how, how are you released from that? And we know that Paul did get past his past because he says in verse number 9, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I'm, I'm the least. I'm unworthy. It sounds like his past is kind of haunting him. But verse number 10 says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than they all. Who's they all? All these witnesses I just named. Peter, James, tremendous leaders in the church, the witnesses of Jesus, I labor more abundantly than they, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. So what Paul says is, I'm the most successful apostle. I'm, I'm the hardest working. I'm the most effective apostle. And he's right, actually. So you say, okay, time out, time out. Which one is it? How is it that, that Paul can hold both of these? One of those has to be a sham. Is it verse number nine? Kind of seems like a guilt complex. Kind of seems like low self-esteem. I'm not worthy. I per persecuted the church. Woe is me. I'm such a bad person. Or verse number 10, confidence, vibrato. God's using me the best. You know, look at me. Which one is it? It's both. 
This isn't a false dichotomy. They are, they are both in this man. Paul was able to look back at his past and say, that was horrific, that was wrong, I'm not proud of that, that, that was wrong, but he's able to move past his past and he's able to be released from guilt and shame haunting him and his conscience is able to be soothed and he says the reason why is the resurrection. It's because of the resurrection that I'm no longer in my sins. That Christ be not raised, then I'm yet in my sins. Reverse it. If Christ is raised, then I'm no longer in my sins. Where are you, Paul? Well, I'm in Jesus, right? Let me put it to you this way. The gospel is the good news that for something to get clean, something else has to get dirty, right? For you to get clean, Jesus had to get dirty. For you to get free, Jesus had to be chained. For you to be set free, then Jesus was going to be held captive. For you to be made whole, Jesus was going to be broken. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And then the gospel is that Jesus rose again. And the, and the resurrection is something that is meant to stamp the life, ministry, teaching, and death of Jesus with an indelible mark of validity. That what he said and what he did actually happened. So I could illustrate it this way. Raise of hands, how many of you have ever shopped at Sam's Club or Costco. Anyone ever shopped at, okay, most of us have been at Sam's Club or Costco. Out of curiosity, anyone ever not shopped at Sam's Club or Costco? Okay, you should make your way there. There's free samples. It's a college student's dream, okay? There's like a hot dog and a Coke for 50 cents. Like you can eat cheap there and it, it's fantastic. It's way better than ramen. If you go to Sam's Club or to Costco, they have taken a different approach to loss prevention. You know what loss prevention is? LP. If you have a major retailer, loss prevention, they're the team of people that actually go around and make sure people don't steal stuff, right? Anyone in loss prevention? You work for maybe Seals or Lowe's? Okay, right here. Loss prevention guy, right here. What's your name, man? Malachi. Malachi, our LP man, okay? Where do you work? I used to work at Fred Myers. Fred Myers, okay. Did they put you in plain clothes? You had to go find people who were trying to steal and like arrest them and stuff? I, I didn't, but. You didn't, but there, there, were, there were people. All right, so Malachi knows what I'm talking about. If you go to Sam's Club or Costco, they're taking a different approach to loss prevention. It's not secret people trying to go find you. They just put someone at the door. You walk in, show them your card on the way in, then they pay an employee to stand at the door, and when you leave, like, there's this receipt checking process, right? You, you're willing your buggy there, and there's always, like, a highlighter involved. I don't know why there's a highlighter involved, but there's always a highlighter involved. They stand at the door, they check your receipt. So if you go to Costco and you have stolen something, you've bought five things, but there's one thing in your cart that you did not pay for, and you know it, and you're going towards the door, you real nervous. You are hoping they don't scan that item that you stole. But if you go to Costco or Sam's Club, and you've bought all your stuff, you've paid for it, you've got your receipt in your pocket, you stroll towards that door with confidence, right? Because they're going to give me your receipt. You're going to whip out your receipt with confidence and say, be gone, you knave. Like, I bought all this. Let me go. I'm going to the parking lot, right? Why can you do that? Your receipt is a proof of purchase that this was bought for, paid for, it's valid, it's done. The resurrection is the receipt. It is the proof of purchase, if you will, that Jesus actually paid for your sins. How do you know Jesus paid for your sins? I, I, I've never been able to take my sins out and put them on a shelf and know that someone took them away from me. Like, sins aren't a tangible thing, right? How, how do you know that the account, that the, it is clear, that it's gone? 
That your sins, you're no longer bound to them. That you're no longer guilty for them. That you are, in fact, justified. That's a very spiritual thing. Anyone ever felt justified? I, I, I never had a feeling or pixie dust. How, so how do I know? How do I really know that Jesus paid for my sins and that, that I am no longer guilty before God? The way that you know, Paul argues, is the resurrection. The resurrection means that what Jesus said he did, he actually did. He says, if he didn't raise from the dead, then don't believe it. If he didn't raise from the dead, don't believe a word he said. But if he did raise from the dead, believe everything he said. And he said that he paid for your sins on the cross. So when you put your faith in him, you now can know they're gone. So what Paul says is, I'm able to move past my past. I'm able to be released from my sins. I'm no longer in my sins. And the way that I can do that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's been said that a, a clear conscience is the softest pillow. And I would argue that Perhaps the resurrection is a divine my pillow. It is God's gift to you to help soothe your conscience. Because a conscience is a tricky thing. Consciences are good. They're a gift from God. And Romans tells us that they accuse us or they excuse us. They accuse us and tell us, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Or they excuse us and tell us, nope, off the hook. That's, that's okay. You can go ahead and do that. And there are times where Christians, they are saved. They believe that Jesus has paid for their sins. And Jesus has paid for their sins. And the account is clear, but their conscience is misaligned. Or worse yet, maybe the accuser of the brethren comes and looks at them and, and pulls out the past and begins to haunt you with your past. You all, you look great today. You look, you look like Bible college students, okay? You look nice and clean and tidy. You look great. Choir, I love the choir saying. I don't know if you did that for me, but I felt like it was for me. I love choir and orchestra. You all look fantastic up there with your, you know, your suits and your ties and all, all your black. I wish I would have worn black today. I would have fit in. You look great. But I know, and you know, that you've sinned. I don't mean that in a generic sense. You know you've done damage to yourself. You know you've done damage to other people. You know the skeletons in your closet, and you know that little closet behind that closet with the bone box in it that you don't want anyone to ever find. You know it. How do you deal with the accuser of the brethren coming to you and saying, look at what you've done, haunting you? God can use you, but he ain't ever going to use you like he's going to use them because, psh, you're, you're way worse than they are. Look at what you, he's never going to, you're going to be on plan B. Life, plan B, forever. Too much, too bad. How do you get over that? How do you get past that? Paul says, I was the one who persecuted the church. I was the one who killed people, but look at how God is using me. How? Because I'm no longer in my sins. I'm in Jesus. How do I know that? Well, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lastly, I want you to know that the resurrection grips our heart. This is a really interesting part of the text, verse 30, 31, and 32. And admittedly, it's a little tough to untangle, but when you work at it, it, uh, it produces some great fruit. Paul says, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? So he raises the question in light of the resurrection, why do I put my life on the line all the time? Why am I constantly being beaten and shipwrecked and going through all this? Why am I in jeopardy every hour? He says, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. What he says there is not just, oh, kind of, I die to myself daily, but what he's, what he's referencing is like, my life is in jeopardy. Like, I could die every single day. Verse 32, if after the manner of men I have fought with the beast at Ephesus, we honestly don't know exactly what he's talking about here. Apparently, the Corinthian church just knew exactly what Paul was referencing, 
we don't know entirely. There's a lot of speculation. Uh, we know it's negative. We know that this was something hard and terrible for Paul. We don't know if maybe beasts at Ephesus are men who just persecuted him. Perhaps at Ephesus someone tried to like get him into some sort of gladiatorial fight and actually pit him against a beast that was going to maul him and kill him as many of the, uh, the martyrs that happened to them. We're not for sure, but we know that this was heavy and bad and that this was something that Paul wouldn't have enjoyed, fighting with the beast at Ephesus. Why do I do this? Then he says, what advantageth it me? So what advantage does this have to my life if the dead rise not? Same argument. If the dead don't raise, then why would I do this? He says, if the dead didn't raise, and, and that, that's the way that it is, then he says, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What he says is, if the resurrection isn't true, if Jesus didn't raise, that means the resurrection he's promised us as believers, then that's not true either. And if neither of those things are true, then let's just be hedonistic. Let's just live for ourselves. Let's just eat what we can, drink what we can, soak in all the pleasure we can, because we're going to die soon. Life's a vapor. It's coming fast, so we better squeeze out of life all that we can get, and we better get all the travel in and all the food in and all the pleasure in that we possibly can, because we got like 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, and that's it. We're done. Toast. Adios. And there's no more after that. It's the end. And if that's the case, why would I ever sacrifice? Why would I risk my life? Why would I give of myself? What he, he says there's no reason to live an unselfish life. If we die like beasts, then let us live like beasts. If there's no resurrection of Jesus, then there's no resurrection for us. And so just make life all about you. But what he's saying is the argument in reverse. I know that Jesus raised. And I know that what he promised me in eternity is, is, is a resurrection that will await me one day. So I today now can do what's right. I now today can, can live an unselfish life. I can do what's scary. What Paul is saying is so beautiful. He's saying that the resurrection isn't just some pie in the sky that never intersects with our reality. He's saying this grips my heart. This grips my will. The resurrection has argued me into a different person. I don't think the same. I don't act the same. My priorities are not the same. It's not just living for myself in this life. My priorities are fundamentally altered, and the resurrection has made me, Paul, a more brave, a more fearless, a more heroic, confident, glorious person. That's what he says. Now, don't, don't we want that? Don't we want to be more brave, more fearless, more confident, a more glorious person? Raise up hands, who wants that? Paul is saying the resurrection is doing this to me. The reality of what awaits me in eternity, this, this is having an effect on me. The resurrection is more than a logical argument. It's more than just some theological mumbo jumbo that I believe in. This is more than, than uh, psychotherapy for my guilt complex. This is not just chicken noodle soup for my soul. This affects me. This actually moves me. Now listen to me. You need to hear this. I got, I got two minutes. I'm done. You all are studying for ministry. You're studying. Last I checked, there's not a liberal arts program, right? Okay. You're studying for ministry. Do you know what that means practically? 
That means practically, when you graduate and you launch out into ministry, that you could take your skill set and your intellect and your work ethic and go apply it in the secular world and make more money. Real life, that's what it means. That in ministry, you will, you will work just as hard and, and spend, spend your time, spend your brain, you'll, but you'll make less money. And that the people that are in your church or in ministry alongside of you, the, the people that just work secularly, they'll probably drive a nicer car or have a nicer house or have a nicer vacation. It's, it's, it's real life is what it means. This means for those of you that marry, that you're going to have unique stress factors on your marriage that many other people will not have as you seek to pastor or you seek to give of yourself in ministry. This means for each and every one of you that you're not going to have a walk in the park, that you're going to invest of yourself into other people, you're going to pour yourself into them, and at times they're not going to say a thank you, and even at times they're going to stab you in the back and they're, they're, going, to, they're going to assign wrong motives to you and they're going to hurt you. I don't say this to say ministry's terrible, it's so hard, you know, uh, you know. There's a lot of blessings of ministry, there really are. I don't want to make it out to be a bad thing. But I, I, I want you to know, it's not a walk in the park. It's not. This means that you're going to have to sacrifice. Why do that? Why not just go make more money? Why not have an easier life? Why not be able to enjoy some niceties and, and have a higher standard of living? Why not? Well, what Paul says is because of the resurrection. What Paul says is that the resurrection means when you sacrifice for Jesus, you miss out on nothing. Because Jesus rose, he promised us that we will raise. That that awaits us. That this life is not all that there is. So we can give of ourselves. So we can, we can pour ourselves out because we believe in eternity. We believe in rewards. We believe in a physical future that's coming one day. One final note. You could sum up verses 30 through 32 this way, that Paul says, I have all these things, the persecution, the suffering, the beast at Ephesus, I have all these things, and he's more or less saying, I can look down the barrel of the worst the world has to offer me and not flinch. I can, I can take it, I can look at it, I can absorb it, because the resurrection has propelled me into sturdy, consistent, sacrificial Christian living. I know that for many of you, you have stared down the barrel of things that you didn't want to the last year. I think all of us have, as, just as a society. But even as young people, many of you have, have dealt with social media gorging and seeing all the news and all that, and it's affected you mentally, emotionally. You're, you, some of you are perhaps dealing with anxiety, and, and you just this has just not been a fun season for anybody, including you. How can, how can you look at that, take that, and not be shaken and moved all over the place and have sturdy, consistent living? Paul says the resurrection helps me do that. And if, and if you're there and you're, you're real, real wobbly right now, just in your faith, in your life, in your emotions, in, in, your, in your mind, then I, I would really, really encourage you. Stop, consider, meditate, think about, thank God for the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for you day to day.